Hello there, I'm coach Will Love and you're listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. We're fortunate to have Marshall Cho on this episode. Cho is the head boys coach at Lake Oswego High School in Oregon. Cho is also a part of USA Basketball. He has worked the Nike Youth Summit since 2012 and most recently was at the Junior National Team Minicamp in April. Coach Cho, thanks for talking some basketball with us today. How's everything in Lake Oswego? It's good, uh, Coach. Uh, thanks for uh, making the time to chat. And um, yeah, we like you were saying before we uh, started press record, um, we got our summer league stuff going on. It's your typical June ball day for a public high school coach. Um, we got some workouts, getting ready for some tournaments coming up this month, and uh, and off we go. All right. Well, we're going to dig a little bit uh, into how you kind of approach summer league in a little bit. But one of the things I wanted to do is I just gave a little biography on you. But when you look into your biography on how you got to Lake Oswego, it's really cool. It's a unique journey. And uh, so can you tell the listeners about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you know, it's that that part of my journey is something that comes up often in interviews such as this and sometimes i get tired of my own voice telling <laughs> telling this story um but for those people maybe uh you know listening for the first time um hopefully it's it's something that's encouraging and that um you know you could be at all levels um whether it's dealing with middle school kids all the way up to you know having opportunities to work with nba you know professional basketball players um, it's been a unique one. I uh, started as a middle school coach in 2004, 2005 in Central Harlem. I was teaching at the time I was a middle school math teacher teaching in New York City. Um, my principal one day just came in and dropped off a bag of basketballs and said, hey, you're you're our new middle school coach uh, at a charter school I was at. Um, he did that because he saw that I was I was the one teacher on the staff that was out in the yards during recess playing, you know, pickup basketball with the guys at all times. And so it gave me an opportunity to, you know, coach a team that was my own. You know, I was a head coach. I didn't have any assistants. So I had to figure it out. Uh, got a lot of reps doing that. Uh, was very successful for two years, even though we we're a very small school. Um, it reminded me that, you know, no matter what size school you're at, if you're in the gym a lot, and you're building chemistry and you're building a deep relationship with your players, you can get things done. Uh, so I did that for two years in New York City, met my wife. Um, I was a what, what people call a trailing spouse. Uh, she was a, a public health specialist living in Mozambique, uh, working with people, uh, rolling out projects for HIV AIDS prevention in that country. So I got to live there. It's a former Portuguese colony. I had to learn a new language. Um, I ended up starting my own high school program at an international school there in the capital city of Maputo. I worked with the junior national team players. I worked with the club um, that was basically a semi-professional team. You, if you can think of guys who would have been like really good division one, division two players in the States, it was around that level. Um, so I did that for three years, was fortunate enough to um, from there be able to join uh, the coaching staff at the Matha Catholic High School. I was an assistant coach there for three years. Um, during my time there, we had, you know, my first year, there was Victor Oladipo, Jerry and Grant, Jeremy Grant, Quinn Cook, um, and a host of, you know, Division One players that the state of Oregon or state of Idaho, you know, we, we maybe produce, you know, every 10 years or so, like that was on one team. Um, 
so yeah, so that was that was pretty high level. After that, I I tried my hand at the Division One coach, you know, coaching world for a little bit as a director of basketball operations at University of Portland. Um, realized that that lifestyle really was a challenging one in terms of being present uh, with your schedule for your family. I had two young kids at the time, and so I made the choice to go back to high school. and And I've just wrapped up my seventh year here at Lake Oswego High School as the head boys basketball coach. In that path that you've taken, is there a difference between basketball players, say like in Harlem or Mozambique or at DeMatha and where you're at now or, or go ahead? Yeah, I think, you know, um, again, just trying to understand that the listeners here general, you know, your audience is mostly, you know, folks from Idaho and same thing with me just from, you know, being in Oregon, um, I think the talent level, you know, it's, it's, it's a big difference. You, you, you can imagine, um, even when I was coaching in middle school, this middle school team, I had some talented kids who would have easily started as varsity basketball players by the time they would have rolled in as freshmen. Right. Um, so it's, it's a culture thing. You know, the, if you live in central Harlem, you got to hoop, you know, you're in the playgrounds, you, you play AAU, you, you play in your, you know, every recess you're out there on the, on the blacktop. So it's part of the DNA of, you know, a place like Harlem or the South Bronx. Um, same thing could be said about the time at DeMatha. They call it the DMB. So you're talking DC, Maryland, Virginia. And, you know, it's in the water, as they say. You know, Kevin Durant, uh, Mike Beasley, you know, at first stretch, you know, you can argue that that's the best basketball players are produced there. You know, I'm sure people from Chicago or, or LA would, you know, beg to differ. But, you know, what I saw there was just a thriving hoops culture. Um, so that places like that, you understand that, that it's kind of, it's baked into the identity of the city, right? Um, what I can say about the time I spend in Mozambique, that, that's also very unique. It's, you know, it's, it's just one country out of, you know, many countries in Africa, but as I touched on, it was a former Portuguese colony, but, you know, for the longest time it was a socialist, you know, country. Um, so that what, what they had in this particular country was influence from the Soviet Union, influence from coaches in Cuba, where people would come and be clinicians and coaches. And so there was, there was people who were coaching the game from the 70s on. So you get to this continent, you think, you know, the kids are going to, you know, as you can imagine, maybe that they would be really raw, but it was actually a, a country with a lot of history and tradition of basketball, in particular on the women's side. So... Also, you you understand that the more time you spend on the ground, that there was there was a thriving basketball culture there. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, you know, even for us, I think you know the successful programs are the ones that are in the gym all the time. So you know, that's what we try to do here at Lake Oswego. Um, try to lean back on the tradition and history here a little bit, and and see if it can you know generate that kind of interest that we had. You know, when we had Kevin Love. And, and uh, Salim Stoudemire and, you know, people of that era from this high school. So you talked a little bit about uh, your experience with college and just the lifestyle that is really tough, but what is it about high school basketball that kind of speaks to you and, and, and keeps you, uh, keeps you there? Yeah. Um, every year, this time of the year, you know, there's speculation that I might go back to college. And I think there, you know, for for, I'm sure there's a coach out there who I've been in their shoes. You know, when I was in high school, I was dying to get to college, you know, and then once I got to college, I was like, ah, this isn't what it's meant to be, you know, and I'm, I'm like, oh, maybe I should go back to high school. And I think we see that now, even coach, like a lot of, a lot of college coaches are leaving that, that field 
and finding head coaching jobs, like prominent, you know, college assistant coaches I've seen recently. And so I think it speaks to, you know, just some of that work-life balance, you know, that, that you're able to strike when you're at the high school level. Um, and also just, you know, I think kids in the high school age group, you know, they're, they're looking for mentors. They're, they're hungry for it, you know, whether you may realize that or not, because, you know, the kids, as we, you know, we've seen coming out of this COVID time, they, they become really sheltered in a way and protected. And, and, and it, there's some of that self-preservation going on within our teenage kids, you know, boys and girls that we, we come across. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of them are looking for structure. They're looking for accountability. They're looking for somebody who believes in them and, and sees a potential in them that they don't even see for themselves. So to catch them in that age range of 15 to 18, when they're developmentally, it's such a critical time in their age. Um, you know, it's, it's a privilege. And so to see the tremendous growth that you get to see from a freshman to a senior, um, I think that's, that's pretty addictive, you know, when you see the success and, and, you know, I've, I've definitely, you know, been fortunate to see a lot of you know, success stories within our short seven years here. So is that where you find the satisfaction in coaching is just uh, seeing those kids after the fact, just seeing them grow or is it winning? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. you know, if it was about winning, it, it's funny you say that, you know, um, we seven years, you know, the first two years I, we were hovering around 500 and part of what, what my philosophy was that we were really going to do it with our backyard kids, you know, um, just just a little bit of time I spent here, you can imagine, it, you know, when people found out that it, it was a former college coach, you know, was coming to take over this program, um, there was a lot of people, you know, wanting to maybe transfer in and that type of thing. And I, I really intentionally, you know, said that, hey, we're going we're gonna to build this from the ground up. So in one way, you know, in one, one way you could say, hey, this is a four-year relationship, like I just explained. But, you know, if you're running a good high school program, you get to see them in camps that you run and that starts from kindergarten, you know, and in our youth program, our feeder program um, for us in Lake Oswego, it runs from fourth to eighth grade. So in many, many instances, you know, as I'm going into year eight, I have something in that I've known since they've been in our youth program since fourth grade, you know, at the ships, you, you, you don't really get to have, you, you get to have that with parents as well. And they see what you're about. Um, but as I was saying, the first two years was really hard. You know, we're, you know, around 500, a lot of people were, you know, doubting if I was the coach, you know, that my resume said I was, but I, by year three, we turned it around. We won our league, you know, we were ranked in the top 10 and, and we went through this period where we won a very tough league in three rivers league in the state of Oregon for three consecutive years before COVID, you know, kind of halted our momentum. And so the last two, um, you know, some of it just not being able to be in the gym. We're a small pub. We're the smallest public high school, along with our uh, counterpart in the city, of, you know, with Lake Ridge High School is the other other high school in town. And so we have to develop our talent and we haven't been able to do it. So the last two years, we've again hovered around 500. So, you know, to answer your question along with the way winning is important, you know, it is a measuring stick and all of that. And we strive to be a winning program. We haven't been for four out of seven years. And so what do you have, how do you define winning or success in another way? You know, and again, it's, it's the things that you can't quite measure yet, but hopefully you'll get to see five, 10, 20 years from now. 
when they come back and and these guys are able to as adults articulate you know the lessons that you've taught them so one of the things that you said on the slapping glass podcast that i wrote down and that i thought was pretty interesting was you said my ultimate constituency is the players and so yeah. um you know i thought that was a, a neat way to, to to phrase it and then you went in and talked about dealing with parents and stuff and so my question for you is not necessarily like about parents or the players when it comes to accountability, but how do you, how do you hold yourself accountable in this relationship? Yeah, I thought I, I saw your pre uh, interview notes. And I thought that was probably the hardest question <laughs> that, that you were talking about. Um, how do I hold myself accountable? That's man, that's a tough one. You know, I, I think number one, you have to be surrounded by an amazing coaching staff that can tell you to speak true to you. You know, um, we, I've been very blessed to have, you know, assistant coaches that have been with me since day one. And then others who have joined along the way are how we use our youth program is not just only for our, as a feeder program for our players, but for our coaching staff. So anybody who expresses interest in joining our staff at Lake Oswego, no matter how accomplished they are, I tell them for the most part, they have to start by coaching at our youth program. And because it's the same thing I've done, you know, in starting my career. And I, it's been so beneficial to me to to start my career coaching sixth, seventh, eighth graders that I would like for, you know, coaches who are going to be a part of our our family, coaching family, then that they would have the same start. Um, so I start there, you know, in terms of being held accountable. Um, my assistant coaches are my sounding board. If if I if I ever sound like you know, or if, if I feel like I'm veering away from our, our core values of courage, presence, and trust, um, they're the ones to call me out on it. Um, and then, you know, the constituency part, I, I, this is where you have to ask the, the players that you're coaching. I think, I think it's a two-way street. Respect is given and respect is, you know, earned. Um, and so I, I think for the most part, what, what I've found is as the years have gone on and we've had some success and, and sometimes, you know, the kids can get intimidated by their high school coach. It's just built into, you know, the, the power dynamics, but really trying to meet them where they're at, um, under drawing, drawing that boundary that, you know, you're not their friend yet. That's not until they graduate, but you can be friendly. You can be approachable and you can be honest and say, Hey, what are some things that are working? What are some things that you would like to have improved on and have a dialogue and, and try to put that ownership back on the kids um, whether it's scheduling games, you know, how hard they want it scheduled or, you know, how, you know, when they can be, have workouts or when they need a little break, you know, for them to to have an open door policy where they feel like they have some say in their own career. Um, if I think that's where you start to move towards having it be a player led program and not a coach led program. So what are some ways, uh, specific ways that you check in with your players? What does that look like in your program? Yeah, um, I've said this in other like clinics and other other podcasts that I've had a chance to, and, I, and I've, I've heard this from other coaches as well over the years. You know, every program when you start practice, you start with a dynamic warm up, right? So that's a chance where all the guys are on the baseline and they're working their way up. You know, whether they're doing lunges or they're doing their Frankenstein's or you know their quads, and so it's a it's kind of a uh, a welcoming period to that day, right? So you. That's the first thing you do. I think just as much of a check-in as possible when you're on the court, right? Um, and then even before we start, we gather in a circle and 
typically I'll give what we call a mind candy is, is something that I picked up from coach Showalter on the junior national team. You would give a quote of the day. Every, every great coach has done that. You know, Morgan wouldn't at the math, uh, they didn't call it a mind candy, but he would have a quote that would be kind of the theme of the day. Right. So if you're a good teacher, that's what you do. Right. When you have a lesson plan, you have your objective that you want to accomplish for the day. Well, we do that through our, our quotes. Right. And I, I, I mind them as much as I can. And, and so those are times before and after and after practice we'll have what we call the circle communication where guys are in a circle they hold hands you know that's a, immediately something that's out of their comfort zone for teenage boys hold hands look each other in the eye and you know talk about how that practice went or a coach could give a cue and say hey what's one thing that you can work on and then you turn around to your teammate and you say hey william one thing i can work on today is you know being more poised under pressure situations right? For example. So there's sort of the before and after in the given day of a practice, but really, you know, the other piece is just constantly just meeting them where they're at. You know, um, I don't know what the policy is at your high school, but you know, sometimes like, like coach, you know, the administration will say, Hey, don't text your kids or, you know, have it in the group text, but you have, that's where they're at, you know, whether it's in social media or, or text, you try to, you try to meet them where they're at and say, and, because oftentimes they might not be able to articulate their feelings or their concerns or their, you know, anxieties in person, face to face. So it could be something that triggers a, an article you see you send over or you, you know, it's, it could be just a check in. Hey, let's let's have lunch tomorrow, you know, and, and grab a couple of guys and have lunch and, and see what they're see what they're doing. But all, all of that just comes down to just trying to be in tune with what they're going through um, and, and asking questions that can that can be probing. And then being comfortable with teenage boys that, you know, they might not give their answers right away, but the more you probe, you know, especially given this time, I, I've found that with each passing year, um, the kids are more open to share what's going on in their lives than ever before. Um, so I think it's, you know, I've evolved in, ter in terms of just being a better listener, you know, and letting them talk things out and asking follow-up questions not not just jumping right to the, the advice or you know um you know some words of wisdom i might shed no like it's really just sitting there and being really good about asking follow-up questions with them so uh, i'm going to kind of rephrase this question from the one i previously sent to you so you know i, I hate, hate doing this to you but uh when you're discussing roles with players is it the same with player number one as player number 12 that's a good question i the the roles for player i mean player so my my question back to you to answer a question with a question what what is player number one you know are they are they the leading scorer are they the leading rebounder like how do you define one right um and that that question alone makes it so that it's our traditional way of looking at things in terms of a hierarchy from one to 12 right and and i think I've evolved in that too. You know, we get as coaches, we get in the habit of saying, Hey, I, I needed my 13, 14th man bought in just as much as my number one, my starting five. Right. So th there's a hierarchy there, uh, but it depends on your program. If you're a struggling program, you're going to change your starting lineup constantly. And there's a, there's a blur between numbers two through 13. You don't know what you're going to get from day to day from that. Right. Um, I really think, just looking at it more uh, in terms of like how we, I just defined that circle communication, right? So like if they're all in a circle, 
holding hands. I'm, they're not in a single file line. They're really just looking at each other. And, and you know, there is there is that hierarchy of the playing time that you can determine your one through 14. But I think there's another way of looking at it where, you know, so I've had some 13th and 14th men who I've given them a responsibility in practice that, you know, that would determine the success of that day. You know, for example, this past year, I had a, a young man who was essentially our 12th or 13th man, and he had been injured, got in, wrist injury, but he was the most vocal guy in our program. And my assistant coach and I, we just handed the practice plan to him and said, hey, you run the next 20 minutes. You know, and for that that moment, he's my number one, right? He's He's the one in charge. So it, I think some of it is just, you know, the daily, the daily routines are good, I think, but sometimes there, there's times when that needs to be disrupted. So, you know, um, I try, we try to do that from time to time so that we get out of our own way of thinking, okay, like I just got to spend the most time with my top seven guys. You know, you never know if the 12th or 13th guy, you know, for that particular day, um, this young man who Tyler Lada, who, you know, was injured, he demonstrated that he was over himself. He was about the success of the team. He used his voice. And those are those are things that are positive that came out from our 12th or 13th man that that changed the trajectory of our season. You know, and so um, I don't know if that really answers your question, <laughs> but, you know, we, we try to like think of things that's not necessarily in a linear way, linear no. fashion. Yeah, no, I appreciate that because, you know, I wasn't looking for, well, I guess I was looking for a certain answer, but the way that you went got me thinking about how I approach it. And that's why I'm doing this. So I appreciate that. Yep. I'm going to jump back a little bit in a question that I had uh, earlier on that I haven't asked yet, but it kind of like got me thinking about this. So when thinking about kind of breaking some of those norms versus, you know, some of your experiences and seeing kind of traditional things. Like, how do you filter that? And how do you say, okay, maybe this is a norm I need to break or we need to rethink? Yeah. You know, there's coaches who coach with feel versus coaches who are like super pre prepared and they have a script almost. Um, I would say I lean more towards the feel. You know, um, I, for example, if we're playing a game and I, I'll have a certain um, flow of the game in mind, right? But what I try to do is I watch as much film as possible so that even though it's, it's what great teachers do. Right. So I spent majority of my, you know, my first five years, six years before I became, a, you know, a coach, you would say I was a school classroom teacher. And, and, you know, if you teach, you can do all your lesson plan, but at the drop of a dime, the master teacher can really just have a feel and a pulse on where, if the lesson's working or not. You know, and, and the ones who are good, they can toss that plan out and pivot like on the spot. And so um, I, th I think I just lean more towards that way. I, I think just as time has gone on, I'm I'm constantly looking for is. Is the is the drill or is like if is drill or, or the practice plan that I've laid out, are we getting the most out of that right now? And. And sometimes you can you can fall into the trap of thinking that there's great energy in the in the room in the gym, so that kids are clapping, they're into it, they're having fun. But you might that might just be fluff, you know what I'm saying? Um, but I, I want 
I want to know that there's like a quiet, like out, sometimes I'll see that there's a quiet hum of concentration of the guys who are doing something that's new. And there you could see like over a course of a 10 to 12 minute chunk of practice that there's been improvement from the first few reps to the 10th rep, the 20th rep and so on. So, um, you know, that's a really good question. I think it's just everything that I, I, I feel like, I, I hope it's not a cop-out, but it's what I'm answering is like, you just have to have a pulse on the guys that day. You know, I think some of it, again, it comes back to if you checked in with them before, if you'd spoken to them before they left, you know, practice um, and you're, you're paying attention. Okay. Is this guy, did this guy come ready to work today? Or is he going through stuff that he hasn't been the stress of the school or the relationships that he has outside of school, his family life, is that keeping him from being fully engaged for the next two hours? I think it's just the moment that you blow the whistle and you start practice, you have to be in tune with that now more than ever. Um, so I, I'd become more of a fuel, do it by fuel coach. If I feel like a segment's not, that's not working, you know, I'll, I'll cut it short, whatever the minute or two, and then move on to the next one. Um, but for the most part, we have really good kids that they, they like to work. And, and so, you know, my assistant coaches will laugh at me, but for the most part, you know, we, we stick with the practice plan we have and we'll end the segment and move on to the next one. So is there an area of leadership that you are focused on developing right now for yourself? Uh, I should say not. Yeah, no, personally, you know, I think I'm just, I'm at a phase in my life where, you know, I've been doing this for about 15 years. I've been able to have some success. I've been really fortunate to have, have a chance to work with some high level players and, and, and all that. Um, what, one thing I'm working on is really just embracing that my identity as an Asian American coach during this time and being more outspoken in terms of, you know, what, what the recent times of Asian hate crimes and things of that nature that we've seen, knowing that I'm, I'm one of very few, you know, head varsity coaches across the country that, you know, that look like me. So I think um, in terms of trying to grow in embracing my, my area as, a, as somebody who's representing the Asian American population in this state, in, in this country, um, realizing that, you know, I'm more than just a basketball coach. Um, I think that's one, one area of leadership that's tied to my identity. Um, but in terms of just the, the other aspect of it, I think, uh, like I said to you before, I think it's learning to keep my, this, this podcast doesn't do a, a, a good example of it because you're asking me to talk this whole time, but really, <laughs> really focusing on not talking and listening, I think is, is this the piece of leadership that I'm really learning to embrace, you know, in the, in the past few years. Um, is there any, really, yeah. Oh, I was going to ask, is there anything specific that you've learned from kind of um, standing back and, and listening a lot more? Uh, you know, again, just coming from our COVID time, what I found is that kids are dying to be heard. You know, our, our young people are dying to be heard. And, and sometimes, you know, their first or second or initial comments might be, you know, some a typical teenage, you know, some ignorance, it could be an ignorant statement, or, you know, you would feel like it's an ignorant statement. But just think about what I just said there, even, you know, like we, we as adults think we have all the answers, we don't, you know, and it's clear that we just went through a period of time that all of us are, we're feeling a sense of loss, like being lost and wandering and, and, and trying to decide what is the best way to approach the next step, right, in terms of safety, in terms of, you know, in terms of responsibility, like in terms of um, at the end of the day, ultimately just providing a safe space for our guys. 
you know, whether it's, it's all the protocols that we had to do to keep them safe from COVID, all the way to providing a safe space where they, they feel like they can open up and be vulnerable. Um, some of it, I think I've, I've always, I wouldn't say taken pride, but I knew that this was a gift that I did, I do have in that I'm pretty much an open book. That's just how I am. I, I, I'm, I can be pretty vulnerable with the kids in terms of the stuff I struggle with or the stuff that I'm dealing with. And I think trying to model that for our young people is to say like, listen, none of us are perfect. None of us have this figured out. Um, let's figure it out together. This is what I'm dealing with. How are you guys doing today? You know, so um, case in point, you know, again, I don't know how many listeners, you know, like I, the reason the reason I left college basketball was because my second year, my mother got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. You know, and she's to this day, eight years later, we've been super fortunate. We've had the best medical care. But, you know, I'm sure there's listeners out there who've lost a loved one to cancer or, you know, are have somebody who's going through something. Right. And and for me, like that was the first time I really had a first firsthand exposure to somebody that I love that it could have gone either way. She could have she could have passed if if the cancer, you know, cancer had spread to her organs. Um. I share that openly. And when we have our coaches versus cancer events, like I, that's something that's, that's on my forefront, you know, uh, thinking about other family members, you know, our, our, our players have who, who are dealing with, you know, a cancer battle. So that's just one example, but, you know, I, I shared that with the guys openly. And then I'm, I'm, you know, usually amazed that, you know, three or four kids will say my, I just lost my grandpa to cancer, or I just, you know, my, my cousin is, you know, dealing with chemotherapy right now. So it, it's a, it's a point of contact that says, Hey, we're both, it's, it's, it's a human thing that we're dealing with. Um, I'm here for you. You know, I, I've gone through it. I'm going through it. You know, um, please let me know if, if you're having a rough day, how I can be more patient with you, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so in, in terms of just sharing the things that, that are, that, that allows them to see that their leader is vulnerable, I think is, is something that I've grown in. You know, but I continue to strive to work on so that our kids can feel like, you know, they're not the ones going through it by themselves. So you talked about the importance of your assistant coaches. So how do you utilize your assistant coaches? And then how do you, is there a method that you use to provide feedback or evaluation for them? I wish, yeah, no, that's, that's really good. You asked that question. I'll, I'll start on it tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I, you know Beat me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that these questions, I, I hope that like, you know, I, I, when I, you mentioned the slapping glass, you know, podcast, that's been super popular with coaches, and mo most of them are professional coaches, right? College coaches are professional coaches. And I, when I went on it, I was, I think, a, the second ever high school coach to be interviewed by those guys. And I remember going on thinking, man, like, these guys are like, some of the some of the topics that these guys spoke on, like, I think I'm just like in the company of geniuses, you know, I, I don't, I don't have my life put together like that, or I don't spend that much time. And it's, it's for, I, I'm hoping that this audience that that's going out, you know, the, the people that are listening to it today are high school coaches like you and myself, and we have to give ourselves grace. You know, many, many people work full time and coach teach full time. You're dealing with kids all day. And then you come back and, you know, you're, you're pouring back into kids again. So I think um, with your question about utilizing, I, Honestly, like I could be more organized, but all I've done that I can take pride in is that I surrounded myself with good people who are willing to do anything and who can put up with my like 
lack of organization at times because they'll come in. I think the, the best thing, you know, for, for anybody who's out there, an assistant coach, your, your best ability is your availability, right? And the more flexible you are, the less stress you're going to put on yourself and your boss. So, you know, today I have a, you know, workout coming up here in, in a few hours. I just on the last, last minute whim decided to turn it into a scrimmage. This time of the year, we have college alums back. So we're going to set up like we're playing a game. And I have, you know, five or six alumni members who are coming into scrimmage our guys. Our guys don't know that. You know, it'll be a surprise to them. My staff didn't know that until yesterday, you know. But, you know, I say, hey, guys, a quick turn. I think this is what we're going to try today again. Because my gut was telling me that that's what we needed to do today. So we turn on a dime and, you know, we can toss out the workout plan for tonight. We'll, we'll work on that next Tuesday. But tonight we're going to have a scrimmage. So, you know, I think for me, it's just having people who are, who are flexible and malleable to the whims of their, you know, their high school coach, their boss, I guess. Well, it sounded one of the things that I, I liked that you talked about in that going back to that slapping glass uh, podcast was that you talked about one of your assistants uh, presenting uh, some type of action or formation or something yeah. like that. And you just saying, OK, well, you're in charge of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best kind of clinics that you, you know, we we all fall into the curse of the clinic, right? Have you heard that term, coach? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You go, you see some some act, some some you know a particular you know gimmicky defense that this one coach had to do because maybe that's the environment that he's in in his league in order to survive or you know or you know have success. I I think there's also the curse of the podcast too. You know, yeah. Someone listening to this could be like, well, shoot, Coach Cho said he does it this way. I'm going to do it that way. But, you know, you have to understand the context, right? So for me, we, you know, at Lake Oswego High School, it's one of the wealthiest suburbs in the state. So, you know, I don't have to fundraise as hard as other programs do. But I, we do have a small population, you know, of enrollment of 1,100, almost approaching 1,200. And, you know, we don't have a lot of transfers. And we, you know, so there's there's contextual things that's specific to Lake Oswego. Um, but I, I say, you know, the best clinic for me is, again, when I hire a great coach and they're going out and doing the research and coming back to me and saying, hey, coach, I think this can really work. Then when, once the coach, assistant coach has take, done the work and taken ownership of it, I trust them. You know, say, hey, now, I okay, we'll flip the script. I'm the student now. And I'm going to ask you all the questions of why this would work or why it wouldn't work. And then I, and it's fun, right? Cause it's hard being the boss all the time. It's hard having answers all the time. So if you're the head coach and you could sit back and ask all the questions and make somebody else come up with the answers, I think, I think that's pretty fun. Right. So the particular example that you bring up that I, I brought up on the slapping glass interview was I had this young coach, TJ Dorado, who for the two years prior was with the Austin Spurs. You know, who knows where my career will go. Maybe at some point I will go back to college or I'll, you know, maybe I'll skip that and go back to, you know, go coach in the G League or try to, you know, hop on the NBA bench. What better way to learn from somebody who just lived it for two years and learn their lingo and be stretched that way. So um, I think ultimately it just comes back to the ownership, the level of commitment and ownership that an assistant coach will take. And so I've been, and I also know that it's not normal to get to have a former G league assistant come and be your <laughs> right. assistant coach. I know everybody else in Idaho is like, this guy's crazy, you know, like good for him, but I don't yeah. have that. You know, <laughs> most, most normal situations are, you know, that, um, that you have, you know, other fellow working, you know, 
coaches who are working just as hard as you in the classroom and and rushing over to the next job and trying to do the best they can to pour into the kids for two hours. So um, I understand I understand when I am in that fortunate situation to have somebody who's ready to really, you know, professionalize, you know, what, what we're doing here. So in those times you humble yourself and you, you, you take the back seat and try to learn as much as possible. Yeah. I've been in a similar situation, not with a G league coach, but, uh, one of my assistants, uh, she just came back from, uh, five years playing at the university of Montana. She played. Yeah. So I coached her before and then she came back and she just had this wealth of knowledge that I just was foreign to me. And so, you know, any opportunity, Hey, Maddie, like you need to let, let's put in inbounds plays. And so, you know, just a way different approach. And it's been fun. Like you said. Well, that's, that's awesome. And I think as you're saying that it's just the most important part at most important thing to keep in mind at that point is con context, right? Hey, this may have worked at Montana, you know, university of Montana at the D one level. Will this work with our high school girls? And, and then you, you find out some things you, it, it absolutely translates and other times, no, you need some more work in order for that to be successful. So, you know, that, that again, having the courage to um, have hold a practice where there, you can have some trial and error. If you, if you're, if you're paying attention to it, if you're persistent enough and you have faith that eventually it'll turn and it's worth the investment of time, you know, I think those experienced coaches are able to take those risks, risks more than younger coaches, I find. All right. So you, Oregon getting into the summer league or summer basketball uh, season and same here in Idaho. So what's, I mean, what's the purpose for you with summer basketball? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. For our program, I, I, I just, I was having coffee with a, a friend of mine uh, this morning who used to work with the Blazers and I, you know, he was talking, he was sharing with me about his life, you know, in the professional basketball setting. And then I was telling him about just being a high school coach. And I found myself saying this, um, we are an exclusive program from November to March. Like we have a tryout process. And, and even though we have five teams, we have a freshman A, freshman B, JV and JV2 and a varsity team. We have, we've historically fielded five teams. Um, this past year with COVID, the numbers being down, we, we were down to four. We're trying to get back up to five again. And so even then we're trying to service about 60 kids across those five teams uh, for a chance to wear our Lake Oswego uniform for four months. Um, once the season ends, I don't know how the regulations go in the state of Idaho. We have a six, six week moratorium period where they can't be in the gym. And then afterwards we get, a, we get six hours per week. Um, leading up until the Memorial Day weekend where we can do basketball related stuff. The weight room and conditioning and all agility work, all of that, that doesn't go towards the six hours. So you could spend, you know, a good 10 to 12 hours in the off season um, working with your guys. But those periods of time and including our June ball, we are an inclusive program. So philosophically, what I've, the decision that I made is when I cut a kid in November and say, hey, you didn't make the team this year. But when we start our spring workout six weeks after our regular season ends and you find that you want to come out and try again, for those who have the courage to put themselves out there, courage being one of our three pillars, anybody who demonstrates that, they get to be a part of the team, if that makes sense. Um, presence and trust is, is the other two pillars. And again, if you have the courage to say, hey, I got cut this year, I'm going to come back out again. 
or if you're an eighth grader and you were, you've always been that C team player or the bronze level, the bottom level player, but you have the courage to come out to summer league and say, Hey, I really want to try this. Then the next thing we do is then, okay, you've, you've shown the cur courage. Now you have to show presence. You have to consistently show up. That's the only way to improve. So for us, that means this June ball, for example, to answer your question, I mean, we'll have kids who've been cut, come back and play, and they could be, you know, depending on who's on who's on vacation and who's juggling their baseball schedule, summer, you know, summer soccer travel schedule, whatever. Um, June ball is for high school. As long as it, you know, it's not a club thing, you know, I'll make, I'll, I'll, I'll be flexible and work with you in terms of when you can and, and can't show up. But June ball is all about just inclusion, being a part of something bigger than you, um, even on our varsity team. This part early, early few weeks, I don't, I sub in five in, five out just to see and evaluate who can do what. Um, and we try to, we try to accommodate as many kids as possible so that they're playing basketball. All right, coach, last question for you. It just got passed in Idaho, so not next year, although I think a lot of schools will put in shot yep. clocks next year and use them. Uh, two years from now, it'll start showing up in our state uh, state tournament. So I know Oregon's also on the verge of adopting a shot clock too. Will it change a lot of what you do if Oregon adopts the shot clock? Yeah, I, I think... We've seen again, and, and I'm sure there's many coaches who either coach in the state of Washington or in Idaho, or if you have a team in Idaho and you traveled and played, that's a team from Washington. And so I would imagine some of the coaches who are listening have just as much of a, you know, experience with the shot clock as I would, you know, when we play a team from Washington or we travel down to California and play. I think all of us can agree that, you know, I think the reason why it's been so hard to convince the general public that the shot clock is important is that people just see the shot clock violations and say, well, there's only two or three per game. How much of a difference will it really make? Right. And I think for all of us who are experts in our field, I think there's two things for me personally, as an advocate of the shot clock that I've, I've been trying to accomplish here in the state of Oregon is that number one, we're the experts, you know, basketball in our country is that one sport where everybody, it feels like, everybody thinks they're an expert. You know, it's not like cricket or lacrosse even, <laughs> right? Where, where I, you and I would hop on and we don't really know what's going on. So we, we have to keep our mouths shut and just kind of, you know, try to learn, right? Well, basketball, just, you know, how many times have all of us coaches heard from a dad who played high school basketball? Well, back when I played, and then, and I say, dad, it's been 30 years. The game has progressed. <laughs> we have a lot more pick and roll now. We're not just running the flex offense, you know? So, I think the number one thing is that we as coaches know what's best, right? And that that just because you you only see two or three shot clock violations doesn't mean that it hasn't changed significantly changed how you're prepping, right? The other piece is, you know, the general general, you know, this was a comment made to me by a, a colleague just the other day. You know, when we go to shot clock, we're just going to see a lot of one two two to slow the you know slow the teams from advancing, and then you know. And then a zone or whatever, so that the 30 second, by, you know, shot clock, the, the crunch of the kids making that crunch time decision with eight seconds left on the clock, seven seconds left on the clock. That's what coaches are looking to do anyways, right? So to me, what then that changes is in my practice plan, right? 
I'm going to make sure that our guys know what to do with the basketball when there's eight seconds left. You know, and that that decision making, I think a lot of a lot of us or the people who are worried about the shot clock are, you know, what I hear a lot is like, you're going to see a lot of bad shots. But that's taking that's that's assuming that you're not practicing and working on those, you know, for, for how I run practice now to once we have the shot clock, how much time I spend on guys making decisions with the end of, end of shot clock with 10 to 12 seconds. It's going to be significantly more than what I do right now, right? So I think I think those unseen um, consequences of having the shot clock, I think we're going to get to see it. I think the coaches who really know how to, you know, run a tight practice, giving the the giving the reins back to the players to make those decisions, and 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 empowering them rather than trying to just control and manipulate the game from the sideline. I think it's going to be it's going to be good. I think it's going, it's going to make the kids who work in the gym the most elevate themselves and, and really just putting that ownership and onus back on the kids, I think is what we try to do, not just on the basketball floor, but what we try to do with them off the court. So if you're following that philosophy, I think only good can come out of it as long as us coaches can utilize the two hours of practice time to equip our kids to handle that situation. Well, yeah, it's a great point to finish on and that we wouldn't be able to adapt to this, that all of a sudden it would just <laughs> become a mess. You know, it's kind of crazy because if you get burned on something as a coach, you know, by a team and you play that team again in the season, like, well, what are you going to work on? Or, you know, we've got other rules, you know, three seconds, like, you know, I know a lot of kids forget that, but, uh, you know, yeah. it's not like we're, we're not teaching them not to be in there. So. I mean, you know, I do have some perspective, you know, I, I mentioned that I lived in Mozambique, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a third world country where, you know, sometimes I would have players who would, you know, when I lived in the rural area, I had kids who were, you know, showing up to the courts without shoes, right? But once they get into FIBA competition, the shot clock overseas is 24 seconds, not 30 or 35 that we may see in the States here. And I've seen these young people adjust. I, th I think that's the... A lot of us adults have a fear that our young people aren't going to be able to adjust to these things. You'll be very, you'll be surprised to see that the game is evolving and it's evolved in some ways overseas faster than we have here in the States where we take pride in the game. But I've seen it. I've seen the shot clock executed with 24 seconds in the third world country. I think it's something that we can get done here in Idaho and Oregon. Well, just one last little note on that. I because I'm a basketball nerd, like all of us, uh, I was watching like some middle Eastern countries, like 13 year old basketball, basketball game. And they had the shot clock and was there some bad shots put up? Yeah, but it was entertaining to watch. It was back and forth. Like I said, it was just entertaining, entertaining to watch as a spectator. And you could also see that the kids were learning and trying to accomplish some stuff. And, and so, you know, I agree with you there that, uh, you know, kids are going to adapt to this and, and, uh, you know, I think ultimately we're going to, uh, find it a better product for people to watch. Yeah. That's the hope. All right, coach. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been a lot of fun to get to know you and meet you. And, uh, so, uh, good luck uh, going forward and thank you for coming on. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email me at idahobasketballcoachingpodcast at gmail.com. 